This is an ABC podcast. Hi, I'm Tom Switzer. Thanks for joining me for Between the Lines, the summer series. In a moment, we revisit a conversation I had in April of 2022 with Francis Fukuyama. He's a senior fellow at Stanford University and author of Liberalism and Its Discontents. He outlines the threats and challenges liberalism faces in today's fractious world. And later in this episode, Kylie Moore Gilbert and her harrowing story of how she was wrongfully arrested, then imprisoned for more than two years in an Iranian jail. And Australia's former Foreign Minister and Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, lays out his views and concerns about China and its relations with the West. China's strategic ambition, which is to become the dominant power in East Asia and the West Pacific, uh, and to become the dominant global strategic and economic power, uh, remains in place. But I think there is a, an analysis in Beijing that tactically the flurry of wolf-warrior wolf diplomacy and episodic thuggery which accompanied it uh, has not necessarily, uh, in the tradition of Dale Carnegie, been the best things for winning friends and influencing people. In fact, it's gone in the reverse direction. So I noticed the wolf warriors in recent times have been reined back in again. Doesn't mean that operationally Chinese diplomacy or foreign policy or national security policy is going to be on the defensive, but simply that the public tonality of it for the period ahead may well change and soften. That's former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. Coming up later on Between the Lines, the summer series, we discuss his book, The Avoidable War, the dangers of a catastrophic conflict between the US and Xi Jinping. But first, Francis Fukuyama. Frank, let's turn to your new book, Liberalism and Its Discontents. Now, Liberalism, as you well know, it's one of those words that mean, you know, different things to different people and political groupings. Uh, if a partisan Liberal Party person were in the United States and proudly boasted he was a Liberal, um, Americans would probably think he was a lefty. <laughs> so it gets complicated, lost in translation. So, Frank, how do you define liberalism? Well, I'm using liberalism in a pretty expansive uh, way. So liberals believe in a kind of universal uh, human equality that gives you know, uh, people as individuals rights, and that those rights have to be protected by, uh, by law, by constitutional provisions that prevent the government from infringing upon those rights. It's also connected to a number of other approaches, a cognitive approach known as modern natural science, where people believe that there's an external world that can be understood and manipulated ultimately by uh, by human beings. Uh, and they basically believe in, in a, you know, the need for uh, human freedom as, a, as the basis of human dignity. And in that sense, in that very broad sense, it's not you know, connected as in Europe, like in, in continental Europe, liberal parties are generally like the free Democrats in Germany, they're center-right parties that are kind of more pro-business than the social Democrats. That's not the way I use it. So I think the the Swedish so, social Democrats are actually a liberal party uh, in my sense of the term, even though they're supportive of a much bigger state, much more redistribution than let's say uh, 
you know, the Tories in, in, in Britain. I mean, both of those, I would say, are part of the liberal camp. Where you get out of the liberal camp is where you start making invidious comparisons, you know, like Viktor Orban saying that he's building an illiberal democracy in which Hungarian national identity is based on Hungarian ethnicity. And that's the point at which you start contradicting, you know, some of these foundational liberal principles. And you say that liberalism is under attack from both left and right extremes, which raises the question, which represents, what is it, the left or the right that represents the more serious intellectual challenge? Let's think about the political challenge in the first place. In my country, the United States, there is without question a bigger challenge right now from the right. Uh, Trump has led the Republican Party into a kind of cult of personality in which uh, Republican state legislators are now trying to change the laws under which uh, votes will be counted in the 2024 election. They're trying to prevent Democratic voters from actually being able to vote. Uh, and you could have a very seriously contested uh, election. Uh, you know, it's what Trump wanted to do. He wanted to overturn a free and fair election in November 2020. He was prevented from doing that, but he wants to come back and make a second uh, take a second swing at that. And if that happens, that's going to be one of the biggest threats to the American constitutional order really since the Civil War in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, the threat, though, on the left is a real one because there is a version of progressive identity politics that is quite illiberal. It's not tolerant of opposition. Uh, it is not supportive of free speech when free speech contradicts uh, some of the, you know, deeply held views on things like race, gender, uh, sexual orientation, uh, and so forth. It is willing to override, um, you know, process, uh, due process uh, uh, when it believes that social justice issues are at stake. Uh, and, you know, that threat is not an immediate political one. It's more of a cultural one wherein certain elite institutions like, you know, the arts or Hollywood or publishing or universities, uh, you know, people self-censor because they don't want to get crosswise with, uh, with that form of identity politics. So I think, you know, the immediate threat is from the right, but, you know, there's a serious one from the left as well. Okay, so we've got the left's divisiveness of identity politics on the woke left. That threatens free speech. I get that. And then, of course, as you mentioned, the anti-democratic tendencies of Trumpism. I suppose the question here is, to what extent has technology exacerbated this crisis? That is, added more fuel to the fire of both of these extremes. Well, technology has really made the thing much worse, right? When the internet was uh, first introduced, um, uh, in the 1990s, we all thought that it would be great for democracy because it was going to take away all the gatekeepers that uh, prevented information from getting out. Uh, and it's done that. That's exactly what's happened. But it turns out that a lot of those gatekeepers were actually pretty useful because, you know, they did things like check facts. Uh, they verified uh, information. Uh, they tried to guarantee a certain quality of information. And these days, you know, you can say anything you want uh, on the Internet. So if you, you know, do a Google search and say, you know, are uh, COVID vaccines safe, you'll get 10,000 hits of people saying, no, no, they're very dangerous. You know, it's all a big conspiracy. 
by uh, elites using, you know, the medical establishment to manipulate you. Uh, and, uh, you know, that leads to a kind of relativism. You know, so we, in a liberal society, we are relativistic about, you know, ultimate questions. We we don't say there's a single religious view or a single cultural point of reference that we all accept. But up till now, we've actually been able to agree on basic you know, empirical facts like who won the last election or is this vaccine uh, safe? And at this point, we can't agree on those, you know, those simple empirical questions. And it means that, you know, the two sides of our polarization in the United States don't just disagree on values. They, they're living in completely different information universes. And that makes, obviously, deliberation, uh, democratic deliberation, very difficult. And despite the uh, the threats of these extremes on both left and right, and despite the menace of authoritarianism, am I right in saying, Frank, your faith in liberal democracy remains firm? Well, the normative faith, uh, I think, is, is completely firm. The reason I wrote my current book is that I wanted to make a case for liberalism, a positive case for liberalism, because lots of people have been writing about the problems of liberalism. But I wanted to remind people why it's important. And you know, I think there are basically three reasons. I mean, there's a pragmatic reason that it's a means of governing uh, in a diverse society and allowing people with diverse viewpoints to live with one another. There's a moral reason, which has to do with human dignity and liberalism's protection of human autonomy. And there's an economic reason, because liberal societies protect property rights and the right to transact, and hence have been associated with a high degree of entrepreneurship, growth, uh, prosperity. And I think people need to be reminded of those reasons, because you know there are problems with liberal societies. And you know, in the last few years, it's the problems that have been getting uh, all of the attention. So the spirit of 1989 has not gone away. On that optimistic note, Frank, great to have you again on Between the Lines. Thanks very much, Tom. It's a pleasure to be back on. That's Francis Fukuyama, author of Liberalism and Its Discontents, now available in Australia. ABC Radio National, this is Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer. Up next, former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd on his new China policy thesis. warrior diplomacy. Remember that. That's the Chinese Communist Party's attempt to use its growing economic power to coerce or harm weaker states that pursue policies not to Beijing's liking. And Australia, of course, was subjected to that hardline strategy during the COVID crisis. Remember, in response to Canberra's call for an international inquiry into the Wuhan outbreak, 
China hit us with tariffs across a wide range of sectors. Well, my next guest says China is retreating from those aggressive tactics. At the same time, though, China, he says, still seeks to dominate the region and, in his words, quote, redesign the world order in a manner according to the interests, values and power of China. Dangerous times indeed. The 2020s indeed looms as a decisive decade in the overall dynamics of the changing balance of power between China and the US. So how do we manage the increasingly intense strategic competition with China? Kevin Rudd was Australia's Prime Minister twice from late 2007 to mid-2010 and briefly again in 2013. A student of China since he was 18 years old as an ANU undergraduate, Kevin Rudd has lived for a number of years in the US where he's the Chief Executive of the Asia Society in New York. His new book is called The Avoidable War the dangers of a catastrophic conflict between the US and Xi Jinping's China. That's published by Hachette Australia. Kevin Rudd, welcome back to the program. Good to be with you, Tom. Now, you say China is retreating from wolf warrior diplomacy, yet it still advances its strategy for dominance. Tell us more. Well, it's the difference classically in the Chinese understanding uh, between tactics and strategy. Uh, China's strategic ambition, which is to become the dominant power, in East Asia and the West Pacific, uh, and to become the dominant global strategic and economic power, uh, remains in place. But I think there is a, an analysis in Beijing that tactically, the flurry of wolf, wolf warrior diplomacy and episodic thuggery which accompanied it uh, has not necessarily, uh, in the tradition of Dale Carnegie, been the best things for winning friends and influencing people. In fact, it's gone in the reverse direction. So I noticed the wolf warriors in recent times have been reined back in again. doesn't mean that operationally Chinese diplomacy or foreign policy or national security policy is going to be on the defensive, but simply that the public tonality of it for the period ahead may well change and soften. Does all this mean then that Australia and the West have been incredibly naive in engaging with China during the last three decades? Now, before you answer that, Let's hear from your old sparring partner on this program, Kevin. This is Professor John Mearsheimer from the University of Chicago on the folly of Western engagement in the post-Cold War era. What engagement says is that if we can integrate China into the international economy that the United States helped create during the Cold War, if we can integrate it into that economy, integrate it into institutions like the World Trade Organization, it will become a very powerful country, but it will become a peaceful country and a so-called responsible stakeholder in the international system. Now, for a realist like me, this was a crazy policy. This was remarkably foolish because what you were going to do in my story was you were going to create a very powerful China that was then going to try to dominate Asia, push the United States out of Asia, and develop power projection capability that can be used outside of Asia to change America's dominant position in the world. Engagement was a major mistake. That's Professor John Mearsheimer on Between the Lines last December. Kevin Rudd, uh, you've been a strong advocate of China engagement, but in more recent times you've described yourself as either a brutal realist or an, um, a hopeful realist. Do you now recognise that we in the West, as John Mearsheimer just put it, 
we've just been feeding the beast. Well, Ms. Scheimer's uh, analysis is firstly ahistoric uh, and B, uh, deceptive. Let me go to those points in sequence. Ahistoric in the sense that engagement has been in, in, uh, pursued by the United States with multiple countries in the past, not least of which has been post-war Japan and post-war Germany. They were invited to join the table uh, of the liberal international order. Uh, they became powerful, but they chose to remain within the order. Now, a similar approach was adopted, of course, a generation after that or two generations after that in terms of post-78 US engagement with China and particularly post-2002 engagement with China when China was admitted to the World Trade Organization. And the results, uh, of course, as we see with China's current assertiveness and, and determination to establish an alternative to the liberal international order, uh, has not been successful. But the second point is this. This is where he's been misrepresenting what the United States, I believe, was doing over that period of time. The argument often used by those on the far right, of which I with which I associate Mearsheimer, is this is that the United States, under successive American presidents, uh, from uh, Bush through uh, back through Clinton, or from Bush one through Clinton through Bush two, and then Obama, etc., um, had been engaged in uh, engagement unqualified until uh, we had the Moses on Mount Sinai moment of of uh, Trump and uh, National Security Advisor uh, for the Trump administration, H.R. McMaster, producing the new national security strategy of late 2017. It's in an inconvenient truth that engagement was never unqualified. It was engagement plus hedge. And remember, hedge equaled continuing to have the military capability to act in the eventuality that engagement failed. That's within that framework. That's why, for example, the Obama administration uh, engaged in the pivot to Asia militarily and embraced the Trans-Pacific Partnership in order to hedge against any emergence of Chinese assertiveness and or aggression. So that's been conveniently left off the Mearsheimian recollection of history. I'd have to say, having known Mearsheimer well for 20 years, he's not on the far right. He's a pretty mainstream intellectual. He's a, just a hardcore realist when it comes to foreign policy. But leaving that aside, how many, how many that China wishes have to you be... seen on the far left recently, Tom? Yeah, well, I think he's <laughs> not, in the middle, but many. nevertheless... He... Yeah, well, Hedley Bull was a, was, a, was a realist. As you know, Hedley Bull from ANU, one of the great Australian realists, and he was a man of the left. But leaving that aside, you acknowledge that China wishes to become the dominant economy in the political system and the strategic power, not just in the Asia-Pacific, but globally over time. That's what you say in your book. But this process, let me submit this to you, that's not just taken a few years. That's been happening over decades, hasn't it? So I'll ask again, why are you and so many former Western leaders so late in recognising the China threat? I think the other thing I would add to uh, what you just said before is that Hedley Bull uh, was also the father of the English School of International Relations, which was not the American School of Realism. The English School of International Relations had two traditions within it. One, a realist analysis of the balance of power, but secondly, the construction of a system of international institutions which could militate against the possibility of rolling crisis, conflict and war. So therefore, I um, respond to your last point because I think it needs to be corrected. 
In terms of your uh, general assertion that there's been a level of strategic naivety about uh, engage and hedge, which is the accurate description of US strategy over a long period of time and that of its allies, you may recall that um, back in 2009, uh, as Prime Minister of Australia, I presided over a defence white paper which was produced which said, we need to be vigilant about the emergence of a more assertive China militarily in our region. It formed the strategic basis for the Australian Defence White Paper of 2009, which commissioned two things, a doubling of the submarine fleet and an increase in the surface fleet by a third. Our Chinese friends went nuts when we produced that because they thought it was uh, far too overt and direct in describing what China operationally had already begun to do during the second term of the Hu Jintao administration. So that's my response in terms of, quote, being late to the party. What about President George W. Bush in, at the time? In 2007, and you make this clear in your book, Kevin, uh, he was very reluctant about the idea of what's called the Quad now, Australia, the United States, Japan, India, for fear of antagonising China. That doesn't sound like hedging. Well, it's not just um, the uh, George Bush administration. If you look carefully at the statements by then Australian Defence Minister Brendan Nelson in Beijing, uh, they were all, as it were, lining up against Quad Mark I, which had been the product of the thinking of Shinzo Abe when he first became Prime Minister of Japan briefly in 2007. And so for those sort of reasons, um, I think there were divided opinions at the time but the overall problem with the American condition on this question was this. The United States was overwhelmed with its uh, framework for responding to, uh, quote, the war on terror, unquote, uh, both in terms of what happened on um, September 11 and then uh, the folly of the American invasion of Iraq in 2003. And as a result, this basically preoccupied the United States for the better part of 15 to 20 years. It's during that period of time uh, when you saw belatedly responses in the United States begun with Obama's pivot and with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and then I think sustained at a different level through uh, the uh, national security strategy of H.R. McMaster, and now embraced, I think, on a bipartisan basis in the United States. Yeah, well, I mean, you say that, uh, quote, phenomenal progress from 2016 to 2020 courtesy of Donald Trump, the US as the stabilizing fulcrum in the international order started to wobble. China didn't believe their luck. And you go on to say that the diminishing of US standing was unprecedented. That's what you say in your new book. But let me put this to you. One can be a critic and oppose Trump and still recognize that A, China exploited the geopolitical opportunities as a result of the US being distracted by those endless post 9-11 wars, which Trump opposed. But moreover, Kevin, it was not until Trump arrived and McMaster arrived on the scene when the Americans finally stood up to China and challenged its rise both economically and strategically. Kevin Rudd. Well, as I acknowledge uh, clearly in the book, and I regard H.R. McMaster as a friend and colleague, because of his clear thinking reflected in the national security strategy of 2017. But I think if you were to um, have that conversation with H.R. McMaster, who himself, of course, um, as a general, had served in uniform during the period of the, Trump, of the Obama administration, that measures were taken during the period of the pivot and then subsequently with the Trans-Pacific Partnership 
because this is not just a military response. It's also a geoeconomic response. And the whole rationale of the Trans-Pacific Partnership was to provide market opportunities other than China to the free economies of the Asian hemisphere, then repudiated by Hillary Clinton going into the 2016 election, and then most critically, uh, unilaterally abolished in the first measure of the Trump administration. The bottom line here is in terms of cold, hard balancing, which is, if you like, one element of the Mearsheimian response, and certainly my own view of strategic reality, is that we've not had a uh, completely effective response from either the Obama administration or the Trump administration. We may be getting to this point of, frankly, a greater equilibrium in the way the US approaches China now, but it's been a long journey to get there. And the Middle Eastern uh, war on terror distraction, starting back in 2001, frankly, is a, is a signal cause. And one final point, what the Chinese have done simultaneously, and I outline this in the book, I think, Tom, is in their analysis of the United States and the collective West have looked at not just the Middle East preoccupation militarily and strategically, They've looked at the global financial crisis. They've looked at uh, the uh, dissolution of the European Union through uh, Britain's uh, decision to, uh, to exit it and make it a weaker strategic entity as a result, in addition to uh, the mismanagement uh, of uh, the COVID crisis within the United States and elsewhere, as all symbolic of collective US and Western decline. An overwrought analysis, in my view, but nonetheless has fueled the Chinese strategic analysis of Western weakness. This is Tom Switzer from ABC's Radio National, and my guest is the former Prime Minister and Foreign Minister, Kevin Rudd. These days, he's Chief Executive of the Asia Society in New York. His new book is called The Avoidable War, The Dangers of a Catastrophic Conflict Between the US and Xi Jinping's China. Now, on the book jacket, Henry Kissinger... He's 99 years old. He's the former Secretary of State and National Security Advisor to Presidents Nixon and Ford. This is what Kissinger calls our guest, quote, one of today's most thoughtful analysts of China's development. Now, Kevin Rudd, in your book, you set out 10 circles of interest to help understand Xi Jinping's worldview, staying in power, a China securing national unity, prosperity, modernizing the military, expanding their power, we could go on. But what about China's real limitations and weaknesses? I think of demographic challenges, environmental, ethnic, internal economic challenges. To what extent does all that represent a real barrier to China? Oh, those are significant impediments, uh, Tom, and any rational analysis will lay that um, on the table as well. However, often in the past, when I have sought to present a realist view of the emerging China challenge to various um, American leaders um, over the years, they've often quickly and immediately pointed to the fragilities of the Chinese economy or the fragilities of the Chinese um, uh, political system, etc. Uh, they exist, but frankly, an analysis of the other side's fragilities does not constitute a strategy of one's own. And that's been my critique of this country, the United States, for now live, work and have my being for some time. The vulnerabilities you pointed to are real. The date was demographic destiny, uh, a uh, declining workforce in terms of size, an ageing workforce, an ageing population, population peak either around about now or certainly by the mid-2020s, uh, and therefore a mounting health and social security bill. Sound familiar? 
uh, with the, uh, the challenges of many Western countries, and China is still a developing country. Um, and people aren't getting married as much in China. The natural birth rate is really plummeting, almost in South Korean and Japanese-type trajectories. How do you account for that? I think you've got uh, the emergence of what we would describe as the social forces of modernity. Many Chinese women are frankly fed up with the way in which um, they've been treated by many Chinese men and frankly um, are voting accordingly. And so as a result, um, this is no longer just this, uh, this sort of society which will click its heels and respond socially to what the system wants. I think on top of that, the uh, economic fragilities are also real um, and the movement to the left in terms of China's economic policy settings, favouring once again state and enterprises and creating all sorts of impediments for the Chinese private sector, have created, I think, an emerging um, challenge in terms of private sector business confidence in China, which is in turn slowing the growth rate together with other factors. And finally, the rolling fragility of politics. Uh, whatever we may critique our own political system for, and there are many things, um, we also always have these things called automatic stabilizers, and they're called elections, and then you can toss the bums out whenever you want. Um, and guess what? The system remains still fundamentally stable, leaving aside, by the way, the events of January the 6th in the United States, but I won't go there. But the Chinese don't have that, and so when you've got, um, let's call it, what's often described as resilient authoritarian systems, the danger zone for them is always at the point of internal power transition, where, frankly, things can lurch in one direction or another, and sometimes violently. And talking about danger zones, the widespread view is that Beijing has hurt its credibility by aligning itself with Vladimir Putin. Now, the Chinese leadership is internally divided about this matter. I think you've made that point. Do you think Xi Jinping will abandon Putin? I don't believe so, because the Chinese um, are very much Mearsheimian realists. <clears throat> Whenever Mearsheimer goes to Beijing, they greet him and throw petals on the ground um, because they love what he has to say. That's true, as they do in Moscow, because uh, Mearsheimer simply points to the balance of power and unlike Headley Bull, whom you referred to before, does not offer the way through in terms of a negotiation based on the balance of power. Now, do you call Xi Jinping a calculated risk taker? Doesn't China run the risk of secondary financial sanctions being imposed by Washington and its allies against China if Beijing violates those sanctions? Isn't that a real problem for Xi Jinping? The evidence so far here in the United States is that Xi Jinping and the Chinese system have steered clear of either financial actions or military actions which would cause them to have secondary sanctions lodged against them. And the reason for that is not um, uh, anything other than a deeply realist assessment that as of now, 2022, Chinese economy and financial system remains vulnerable to the US dollar-denominated global financial system, including its essential financial plumbing in SWIFT, the international settlement system. So for those sorts of reasons, the balancing act which Xi Jinping, in my analysis, will seek to pursue is something like this, Tom. Um, steering clear of technically breaching sanctions, providing diplomatic and, um, and political and, shall I say, trade support uh, for Putin's Russia, because at present uh, there are no sanctions against trade in oil and gas and commodities because the Europeans need those things. 
um, and at the same time not abandoning uh, Putin at all for the simple reason is from a realist perspective, uh, Xi Jinping looks at Russia and says China needs strategically a benign Russian border with China. It releases China's strategic energies to focus on their principal regional global challenge, and that's the United States. And at the same time, Russia can create strategic diversion for the United States and other theatres, like Syria, like Libya, and now, of course, in Ukraine. Okay, finally, and this is really the issue of your book, you refer to these two giants, the Americans and the Chinese, finding a way to coexist without betraying their core interests. So the question here is, how do we manage this strategic competition in a way that does not result in a serious crisis. Kevin Rudd. Remember the near-death experience of 1962, uh, which was the Cuban Missile Crisis. An interesting thing happened between the Soviets and the United States after that. Informally, and then more formally, they developed certain de minima rules of the road, guardrails, to conduct their strategic competition in a manner which didn't run the rolling risk of blowing each other's brains out, like nearly happened in 62. My argument is, given where we are now with China uh, and the United States, there are two paths. One is what I call unmanaged strategic competition with a rolling risk of crisis, conflict and war, because there are no rules of the road and it's all push and prod uh, and hope that it all turns out okay in the end. Or instead, what I advocate in the conclusion of the book is a joint strategic framework, de minima, uh, called Managed Strategic Competition, basic rules of the road around strategic red lines, preventing lethal conflict in other areas of competition, uh, in foreign policy, in the economy, in trade, investment technology, and frankly, in ideology as well, the great battle for ideas. And thirdly, still carving out strategic space where both sides agree it's in their national interest to do so, in critical areas such as climate action, as well as managing the next pandemic, because we buggered up the last one so phenomenally well. And then thirdly, uh, in continued global financial stability between the world's two largest economies. In a nutshell, that's the concept of managed strategic competition. And following on from that, and you have a chapter in your book uh, about the, the, the sustainability challenge for China, how then in, in an intensifying security competition uh, can the United States encourage Beijing to slash emissions, especially given China's heavy reliance on fossil fuels? The Chinese renewable energy transformation is massive, but it's still not fast enough. If you were to look at the number of um, solar, wind and other renewable energy plants being built across the country, there is a big transformation underway. But China relies significantly on foreign oil, gas and coal, Kevin. That's true, and so do most other economies at this stage. But the tra it would be empirically wrong to point out that there's no transition underway. It is. It's just not fast enough. Like the one in America at present is not fast enough, and these are the two world's largest emitters. My argument is simply it's not about uh, whether you feel warm and fuzzy going off to a conference in Glasgow. It's got nothing to do with it. It's in reaching a national conclusion that global warming but more importantly in the immediate term, extreme weather events coming out of climate change are representing such a risk to your country's economy and social stability that you bring forward your programs for energy transformation. In China this year, they've had a really bad grain harvest. It's been brought about by extreme weather events of the type which the Chinese have not seen for a very long time. So for those sort of reasons, 
it is an appeal to the national interest of both countries, quite apart from their sense of planetary or global responsibility. But I think you can carve out some space. Remember, even the Soviets and the China, and the and the Americans, after the Cuban Missile Crisis, collaborated on the global elimination of smallpox. Fancy that. Um, if they could do that, then surely we could have enough imagination, creativity to do the same, even within a small uh, realist paradigm of strategic competition. No wonder you call yourself a hopeful realist. Kevin, you and I have been <laughs> doing this uh, for more than 20 years since we met in the late 1990s. Always great to have you on Between the Lines. Thanks very much, Tom. All the best to your listeners. That was Australia's former foreign minister and prime minister, Kevin Rudd. These days, he's president and CEO of the Asia Society based in New York. His book, The Avoidable War, The Dangers of a Catastrophic Conflict Between the US and Xi Jinping, is published in Australia by Hachette. And that conversation took place in April of 2022. If you just tuned in, you're on Between the Lines on Radio National. I'm Tom Switzer. Up next, Kylie Moore Gilbert and her 804 days in an Iranian jail. Well, my next guest has an incredible true story to tell. She's about to board a plane, but then she's taken aside and told she's under arrest. 804 days later, and Kylie Moore Gilbert is finally released from an Iranian jail. Now, what happened to her and why? That's the subject of her just-released memoir. It's called The Uncaged Sky. It's published by Ultimo Press. Dr. Kylie Moore Gilbert is a scholar of Middle Eastern and Islamic studies. Now, at the time of her arrest and detainment in 2018, she was a lecturer at the University of Melbourne, attending an academic conference in Tehran. And to share her remarkable story, I thought we'd invite Kylie onto the program. Kylie, great to have you on Between the Lines. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. Now, tell us a bit about the people who had you locked up. Who were these captors? So the people who locked me up were called the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, or the IRGC, or the Revolutionary Guards. They're referred to by many different names. In Farsi, they're called simply Sepa. And they are a kind of a state within a state in Iran. They're not part of the formal or official Iranian government. They're a kind of an extra-governmental organisation that began as a militia group, essentially, um, following the Iranian Revolution in 1979 and most prominently during the Iran-Iraq War um, of the 1980s. But now they've expanded out um, to literally cover every aspect of Iranian economic and social governmental life, as well as obviously military capabilities. So they, they're huge investors, they have companies everywhere, they're involved in infrastructure projects, they're even involved in uh, the intelligence game, which I wasn't aware of at the time when I travelled to Iran. It wasn't the government who had you locked up then. It was um, no. It was this this mob. So I suppose that, it, that that made securing a release a lot harder. Definitely, because unfortunately they are associated with the government. It's not an entirely um, non-governmental mafia gang or, or group of gangsters or terrorists or something, although, of course, they could be termed all of those as well. Uh, so the Australian government had a bit of a conundrum on its hands. It 
you know, following diplomatic protocol, it had to speak to the Iranian government, to the Iranian foreign ministry about me. But the Iranian foreign ministry has no control over what the Revolutionary Guards are doing. And in fact, they're rivals of the Revolutionary Guards. You know, the Rev Guards have a intelligence branch, which is what arrested me, which is a, a rival engaged in a turf war with the Iranian government intelligence ministry. So, and often they disagree about who and who isn't guilty or innocent, and they're fighting with one another over, over control of that sphere. And that very much complicated the situation for the Australians. They had to figure out who to talk to, and once they did, how not to alienate the Iranian government in talking to their rivals. Why you? I mean, what were you accused of doing? I was eventually, um, after almost a year of being held, uh, put on trial and charged with espionage for the quote-unquote Zionist regime. But um, most of the time I was not accused of being an Israeli spy. During my interrogations I was accused of all sorts of ludicrous things. Um, I think it was essentially a fishing expedition. But I was told I'm an Australian spy, I'm an MI6 agent, I'm a Bahraini spy even, or that I'm not a spy at all, I'm just a sort of hapless person who's been tricked by somebody else into gathering information, all sorts of ideas. I'm a fake academic. So they threw all sorts of accusations at me, but ultimately in court I was convicted um, in a very sham process of being an Israeli spy. Israeli spy. Now, in hindsight, do you think you had properly understood the risks, especially if there was a connection or association with Israel? We are, after all, talking about Iran here. Yes. Well, I am not an Israeli. I know several individuals who visited Israel and visited Iran. And I was actually, you know, invited to come to Iran by an Mm. Iranian university. I made the effort to apply for a visa in advance at the Iranian embassy in Canberra, despite us Aussies not requiring that, we can get a visa upon arrival at the airport, because I wanted to give them, you know, the benefit of the doubt and and allow them to look into my background, given it's an authoritarian regime, you assume they will. And and they approved my visa, and I saw no indication that it would be a problem. My ex-husband did have an Israeli passport, but he was born in Russia, in the Soviet Union, and migrated to Australia and now lives in Australia. So the link to Israel was there, but it's fairly tenuous. And I've travelled to all sorts of Middle Eastern countries, many of which don't have links or, or diplomatic ties to Israel, and I've never really had a problem. So I, I guess I was naive, but I also assumed, you know, that I'd be okay. Okay, now you spend a week under interrogation where you give up passwords to your email accounts. Now, at this point, do you still feel that your innocence can protect you and that they'll realise it's all just a big mistake? Definitely, because I had nothing to hide. Uh, You know, I resisted giving passwords to my email accounts out at the beginning. I I gave them fake passwords. I didn't tell Uh them all of my email accounts. But in the end, they got, got into all of them. But again, I thought, well even if they do. It's my privacy they're violating, but I have nothing to hide. Things don't go your way and you go from being Kylie Moore Gilbert, an Australian academic, to prisoner 97029. Now, tell us about incarceration. Um, What's incarceration like in an Iranian prison? What's that like for you? It was, it's indescribable really. It's like being transported into an alternative reality or an alternative world or, I don't know, like it. time moves differently there. 
the passage of time is different. You lose track of who you are as a person. You become, as you said, dehumanized into a number rather than an individual with a name and a character and a personality. The dehumanizing treatment, you know, at the beginning it hurts and it's tough, but you just efface yourself to the point that you become apathetic about everything and you just you just stop caring. Solitary confinement too, that would be especially tough. It's psychological torture and it's deliberately so. They know exactly what they're doing. You're thrown into solitary as an interrogation strategy to break you so that you will either make a false confession and obviously also, you know, give up any information of interest which you might have that you might be resisting telling them. I didn't have anything. I mean, I, I was open with them from the beginning. I really had nothing to hide, but others perhaps yeah. do, and, and that's why they do it to you. It's um, it's inhumane, it's degrading, and it's really, really, really tough to go through. 800 days in an Iranian jail. Now, what contact did you have with your husband, family, the Australian embassy? I was barred from consular assistance for maybe four, four months or so, five months at the beginning until the interrogation phase had ended, until they had decided to refer my case to the revolutionary court system. And then the Australian government had been making diplomatic representations behind the scenes and in the end they had to allow them a consular visit in the prison. Uh, but I was not able to discuss my case with the, the ambassador, nor receive any information, meaningful information from him about it. It was literally just proof of life and uh, am I healthy? Am I, am, am I surviving? Um, so contact was very, very limited. And I, I spent long periods of time banned from consular assistance as a punishment. So I was cut off from the outside world for lengthy stretches of my incarceration. Same with family phone calls up. Here and there I was given family phone calls, but then at other points I was banned from all family phone calls as a punishment. So I did have very little knowledge about what was going on on the outside. Kylie Moore-Gilbert is author of her just-released memoir, The Uncaged Sky. It's published by Ultimo Press. Kylie, the official advice from Canberra was to keep a low profile, let the government negotiate your release away from the glare of the spotlight but you thought a higher profile and intense media attention, that could be more fruitful. Um, that was the same strategy that Chappelle Corby used uh, during her time in Bali, different circumstances, of course, but why did you think that a higher profile and intense media attention would help you? I understood that it couldn't be detrimental to me, uh, that my captors weren't going to harm me as a result of it, despite the Australian government telling my family that. And I saw evidence from other prisoners because there were a lot of high-profile political prisoners in the facility where I was being held, and I heard the stories of many others. I saw evidence that it actually could help me in terms of having a spotlight on my prison conditions, my lack of medical treatment, for example, and shaming the Iranians into doing better and providing me with more humane conditions. And that's actually the effect it did have. I mean, after the 12 months or so when my situation was made public, uh, I'm not exactly sure how. It certainly wasn't my family or the Australian government that did so. Um, my conditions did improve and a greater care and attention was put on, for example, if I demanded to see a doctor, if I demanded edible food and, and not the disgusting, you know, prison fare. So it really did, you know, have that effect. But also in terms of the Australian government's policy, 
I think if there was pressure on DFAT, if there were people asking difficult questions of the diplomats, what are you doing to get her out? Have you been doing enough? What have you done thus far? The feeling that, that you're being watched and checked up on, I think, does push the DFAT um, bureaucrats and the politicians in Canberra, you know, including up to the level of Maurice Payne, to actually do more and show that they're doing more. So I think that that, that media attention did play a big role in getting me out when I did, you know, come out after 804 days. And had my situation remained quiet and hidden, I could still be there right now. Yes, well, after some time in prison, you were formally charged and you appeared in court. You describe it as a show trial and you describe in your book, The Uncaged Sky, what it was like in different prisons as well as a vindictive relationship and official um, who kept prolonging your misery. Harrowing time for you, Kylie, but you do get released. How did that happen? My release was orchestrated by the Australian government under the stewardship of Nick Warner, who's um, a former head of the Office of National Intelligence Mm -hmm. and actually a former Australian ambassador to Iran in the 1990s. He was um, made envoy, I think, by Maurice Payne's office. He travelled to Iran several times. Firstly, he negotiated the release of the two Australian backpackers, Jolly and Mark Birkin. Um, He wasn't able to get me out at that point, but he was having conversations with the Iranians about me. And in the end, they pulled off this incredible trilateral diplomatic deal involving Thailand, um, involving the release of three convicted terrorist Iranian IRGC members from a Thai prison in exchange for me. I mean, how do you feel about that swap? I have mixed feelings about that. I mean, obviously, if either or any of those individuals went on to commit any act of terrorism or any atrocity in the future, I would feel directly responsible or implicated. Well, in I was that. going to ask you, what, I mean, what are your thoughts on hostage diplomacy? Had I have known Iran was engaged in this practice to the extent that it is, I don't think I ever would have gone there. Um, I, I don't think there's enough awareness about it really. Now, perhaps more so, but um, obviously today I am very engaged in this area and I'm in touch with the family members Um, of many people who are still being held in Iran and in other countries and former hostages like myself. And I do think that more needs to be done internationally to tackle state-based hostage-taking because it's a sort of a a grey area within international law even, and each country just sort of goes it alone in terms of trying to release their citizen who might be held captive abroad. There's not really many countries that seek to collaborate with one another on this issue. And I think that's a real shame and more can certainly be done in this space. And finally, your friends uh, from the prison in Iran, what do you know about their situation now? I'm in touch with them, actually. Um, It depends which friend, but all of my close friends that I made in the Iranian prisons, Khachaka and Evin, I have been in touch with in some fashion, either via a family member or a friend of theirs whilst they're in prison or they're having come out of prison temporarily, permanently, um, conditionally. And, you know, the two friends I dedicate the book to, Nilufar and Sepideh, they're both still in Evian prison. They've been there for more than four years. I've spoken to them, but, you know, they're back there now and it's heartbreaking. They're innocent. And there are too many stories of innocent people in Iranian prisons, unfortunately. And more power to you for raising their plight in your various interviews and publicity. Kylie, um, what now? I mean, what comes next for you? 
I'm not sure actually. I I spent last year writing my book and now I'm promoting it. I haven't had a huge deal of time off, a great deal of time off since coming back from Iran. So I'm hoping just to take a few months to rest and reassess what I'm doing with my life. I, I've left academia and for the moment at least. And um, I'm, you know, I, I need, I've been through a massive upheaval in my life, my personal life as well, not just in terms of what happened to me in Iran. And I, I do need some time to process through that still. That's Kylie Moore Gilbert. Her book, Uncaged Sky, My 804 Days in an Iranian Jail, it's published by Ultimo Press, and I spoke with her back in April of this year. Well, that's it for Between the Lines, the summer series. I'll be back next time with more highlights, including another view on China, this time from the leading Singaporean intellectual, Kishore Mabubani. We're coming to the end of the era of Western domination of world history, which enabled Australia as a Western nation to grow and thrive and succeed very well. But with the end of the era of Western domination of world history, and as we enter into what I call the Asian 21st century, then clearly Australia has to make strategic adjustments. And the earlier it make the adjustments, it'll be better for Australia. Kishore Mabubani. Kishore will discuss whether Australia really does understand the region and how it should adjust to the new geopolitical environment. Hope you can join me then. I'm Tom Switzer. Bye for now. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.